Today we're doing Acts chapters 12 and 13. And if we could pick a title for chapter 13, we could probably pick any number of things. Maybe something like persecution, dying for the cause of Christ, or perhaps prayer, the power to move the hand of God. But after reading John MacArthur's commentary, I liked his title the best. He titled chapter 12, The Stupidity of Fighting God. And probably because this is exactly what this chapter is all about, and not just this chapter. All down throughout the ages, man has repeatedly tried to fight God, and it only shows how foolish he really is. Because you can't fight God and think you're really going to win. Adam tried and fell. Cain tried and was banished. Nebuchadnezzar tried and became like an animal for seven years, crawling on all fours. The sons of Korah were swallowed up by the earth for their rebellion against God. And the Old Testament records the massive number of Israel's kings, and I believe it's 31 of them in the northern kingdom alone, who fought their creator and lost their lives because of it. Then you have those outside of Israel like Alexander the Great, Nero, Hitler, and on and on it goes. And I'm sure we too, maybe not in a position of authority like they were, but at times try to fight God over things in our own lives that we're not happy about. It's a losing battle, my friends, because Psalm 2 says that God sits in the heavens and laughs and then unleashes his wrath upon those who rebel. Back in chapter 5 in Acts, we saw Peter and the, the apostles were imprisoned and then they were released by an angel. In chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death and becomes the first martyr of the church. And in chapter 11, we see the church of Antioch growing and becoming the blueprint for churches to come. So we hear, uh, here we are in the opening verses of chapter 12, and we're about to see another king who's large and in charge, ready to fight God. Uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So James now becomes the first apostle to die for the church. Um, there was one, more than one James. Um, this was the James, uh, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Now, I know it gets confusing. There's more than one James, more than one Antioch, more than one Herod. So you really have to kind of almost keep track of who you're talking about. Um, so Herod kills James. Now, I think Herod's background is probably worth mentioning. The Herodian dynasty included many Herods, and all of them were related to one another, to each other in one way or another. This Herod, who killed James, was known as Herod Agrippa I. His grandfather was Herod the Great, the man responsible for murdering all the baby boys two years and under in an attempt to kill the Messiah um, in the Gospel of Matthew. That would be in chapter 2. And his uncle was Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew 14. So it was a really nice family. Herod worked for Rome. He ruled over the Jews for the Roman Empire. His Jewish background, if he had one at all, is disputed among historians, but that really is ir irrelevant for any 
Jewishness that he may have had, he only used to his own political advantage as king. He had been in and out of trouble with Rome, just like Pilate. He had landed himself in prison on more than one occasion for failure to keep his mouth shut, having been overheard talking evil about the Emperor Claudius. The only reason he was even able to maintain a position of authority at all was due to his very close relationship and friendship with uh, Caligula. And if anyone here knows anything about Caligula, with friends like that, you don't need enemies. So now Herod wants to keep his job. And if he wants to keep his job, he needs to keep his nose clean and keep his district under control. And in other words, um, keep the Jews happy. No uprisings. So he sees the Jews' animosity towards the Christians growing. So he orders the beheading of James. Now he sees how happy this made the Jews, so he arrests Peter and throws him in prison. Now, timing is everything, and you can be sure that Herod knows this. He's a very shrewd man. He chooses Passover, where he knows the city will be packed with people ready to celebrate, and he always liked an audience. He most likely would have killed Peter um, as well, uh, rather quickly, but being so close to Passover, the chance of chances of upsetting the Jews was probably just too risky for him. So he keeps uh, Peter in prison for the week. And I'm sure he advertised that there'd be another beheading coming soon, so nobody would miss it. It wasn't just Herod's timing that was good, um, but also his choice of victims. James and Peter were apostles. They were pillars of the church. But they were also uh, part of the inner circle of Christ, which compromised uh, Peter, James, and John. And these three were privy to things that other apostles really never saw, such as the transfiguration, the last tearful night with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and such. So, these were important people. Uh, verses 4 through 17 tell the story of Peter's week in jail and Herod's paranoia over the whole thing. He places 16 guards working in four rotating shifts. He chains Peter to two of them and places two outside the cell. And you wonder, why such overkill? Well, it's simple. He didn't want a replay of chapter 5 when Peter and the apostles were mysteriously released from prison by an angel. Meanwhile, back at Mary's house, John Mark's mother, where they met regularly, the apostles and the other believers were praying fervently for Peter's release. Uh, this word fervently can be translated um, into the word feverishly or to raise to a boil. This is how hard the believers were praying. They had to be terrified. Just think, James is murdered without any warning, and then they take Peter. They're two top leaders. So they had to be praying. That would be like like our church losing our pastor and our associate pastor in, in one week. Um, so that would bring you to your knees for sure. But Peter is sleeping between two guards. He's not crying. He's not having a panic attack. He's not looking for a Xanax. He's sound asleep. This is not the same Peter we saw in the Gospels. He's a changed man. He's empowered by the Spirit. He knew God was sovereign, and he held to that. How many times do we give mental assent to the sovereignty of God, yet continue to fret? I know I do. And it's a sin. It's a sin not to trust the God who loves us. I wonder if Peter knew. I'm just thinking this. I'm wondering if Peter knew that he would not die at this time, because he remembered Christ telling him back in John 21, 18, that he would live to be an old man. Who knows? It's just a thought I had. 
Now Herod is about to see the replay he was so trying to avoid. But as John MacArthur says, you can't fight God. An angel comes in, wakes Peter up. His chains fall off and they walk right past the guards. Now either the guards were made blind or Peter was invisible, but in any case, they get to the city gates, which by the way, were made of heavy iron and they open by themselves. Then the angel leaves Peter in the middle of the street. Peter, who thinks he's dreaming this whole thing, finally comes to his senses and heads to Mary's house, where he informs them of everything that's happened. He wanted them to know what was going on and that their prayers had been answered. He also instructs them to tell James. Now, this is the other James, who is one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, also the half-brother of our Lord and the author of the book of James. But he needs to move on, for it will not be long before they'll be looking for him. And you know, so much has been made of Rhoda leaving Peter at the gate and the disciples not believing her. But frankly, Rhoda may have been a young girl, not knowing what to do. She deferred to the men, and they thought it might be as it must be as angel because uh, some of the Jews did have a tradition of believing that the dead would come back as an angel or as an impression of them. And some say they were not praying in faith, but I disagree. I think that they were. And when they saw Peter, um, this only increased their faith that God hears and answers prayer. This little church had been shell-shocked after the death of James and the sudden taking away from them of Peter. And the fact that they sought the Lord in prayer, first of all, to me, says a lot about their faith. They could have done anything else. They could have panicked. They could have who knows what, run away. But I think the fact that they sought the Lord in prayer first, above all things, says a lot about their faith, um, which would only continue to grow thereafter. Now here comes Herod's nightmare. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. Yeah, I bet there wasn't. Um, what an understatement that is. You know they were running around like the Three Stooges trying to find him. Uh, verse 19, and when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards, ordered them to be led away and executed, and then he went from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Imagine that. Herod himself left his palace to look for Peter all by himself. Verse 19 could probably be translated like this. Then Herod ran away to Caesarea with his tail between his legs in utter embarrassment, for he could not face the Jews. Beheading will be canceled. That's how I think it should be translated. You can't fight God, but Herod is just not getting it, but he will. In verses 20 to 23, they show us two things. These verses. The first thing is that God is the sovereign one, so he shares his glory with no one. And secondly, is that God is not aloof and will avenge the murder of his saints. Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So in these verses coming up, there's a political issue going on between Herod and some cities outside of his province. And to reconcile it, he decides to hold a gathering, a big to-do, in the theater where he will address the people. Now, historian Josephus tells us that Herod wore a silver robe so the sun would reflect off of it from the sky through the theater, just as a deity, he'd look just like a deity would look. So as he stood to give his address to the people, the people began crying out, It is the voice of a god, not a man. But Herod did not attempt to stop them, but instead basked in the glory of the people. 
This was a big mistake. Verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms. Josephus also adds that it may have taken up to five days for him to die in intense pain as the worms ate him from the inside out. He tried to fight God, but lost. And what a way to go. But the outcome for the church was just as our early church father Tertullian has said, they keep mowing us down, but we keep springing up. For the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so it happened. The chapter closes with the church multiplying as Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark arrive from the Jerusalem church after delivering a much-needed support. Chapter 12 up till now is focused on Peter and persecution, but now the focus is going to shift to Paul and to missions. Um, I have a map on the overhead here which kind of shows where Cyprus is and where Antioch is. Chapter 13 starts out by introducing the church at Antioch. This church was located in the city of Antioch of Syria, and you can see on the map that I have here that it sits along the Mediterranean Sea about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 80 miles south of Tarsus where Paul was from. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, having a population of about a half a million people, and it was the center of commerce. It very much was a melting pot, very uh, metropolitan. There was great diversity there, Jews, Gentiles, people of all lands. And it was here in Antioch that believers were first called Christians. We're introduced to the five elders of this church, two of which will become the first missionaries to the outside world in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. These verses talk about prophets and teachers, and obviously prophets have now faded from the scene because we now have the scriptures and the canon is closed, so there's no need for further revelation. But we do have a great need and usefulness for uh, pastor teachers. And this is the pattern for the church today, a plurality of elders, which is shown here, filled with the Spirit. This plurality is very important because it does protect through accountability and provides for the diversity of the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit provides. No church should be a one-man operation. Uh, it's not biblical and it's not wise. So the elders fasted and prayed for direction in who to send out to the mission field and they were led by the Holy Spirit, not their own inclination. This shows us that the foreign mission field is a distinct call from God and not something that is driven by emotion. Any missionary will tell you that, that the call was specific. And so it was here that the Spirit called Barnabas and Saul, or otherwise known as Paul. So Antioch was the beachhead or the springboard from which the gospel would go out to the world and to the Gentiles. And in verses 4 through 12, Paul and Barnabas set sail for their first target, the island of Cyprus, which is about 120 miles off of the coast of Antioch. And they took John Mark as their helper. And John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. 
Most speculate that, that they may have chose Cyprus as their first target because it was close. Because Barnabas grew up there, so he would know, he would be familiar with the territory, and it also had a large Jewish population because of prior persecution. So there were many synagogues. And that, of course, was a captive audience for Paul, as this was always his patent to go to the Jew first. Cyprus, um, on the map, you can see it here, they covered the whole island from east to west, which would be about a circumference of about 100 miles. But Satan was there to meet them on the west coast. In verses 6 through 12, Paul is presenting the gospel to a man named Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul, or what we would call the governor. And the governor was very eager to hear what Paul had to say about the Lord. But a man named Elimus, a sorcerer and a false prophet, began to interrupt, trying to turn the governor away from the truth. Paul's response was quick and powerful. He looked Elimus straight in the eyes and called him a son of the devil, then temporarily blinded him. But I thought this was ironic because Paul himself was blinded on the road to Damascus, but Paul's blindness led to his salvation. The way in which Paul responded to this false prophet is the same way I think we should respond when approached by them as well. I don't mean individuals that you're witnessing to, someone in your family or someone you've just met, but I'm talking about people who represent a true cult, someone who's been indoctrinated by demons and a true false prophet. If these members of these cults knock on your door or tell you that their Jesus is the same as ours, that is where the conversation needs to stop. No matter what they say, their Jesus is not the same as ours. Our Jesus is God. Theirs is not. We have nothing to talk about, and you will never change their mind, so I would advise against attempting to even do so. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter days, which we are in, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And Galatians 1 through 6 says that even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed or anathema. And he says it more than once. So it, that is a, a stern warning that anyone who preaches another gospel of, about Christ is to be accursed. And so the sorcerer also fought God and lost, but the governor responded to the gospel and believed. In verses 13 through 43, a rather lengthy section, Paul and Barnabas leave the island and sail to the mainland of what would be modern-day Turkey, also Galatia, in that region. It's at this point that John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why or for what reason he left, but Paul saw this as desertion. And the matter does come up again um, later on in Acts, we will see. Um, they arrived at Antioch in Pisidia. Now, this is a different Antioch. This is, um, there were many of them. And as per usual, Paul went straight to the synagogue to preach. Remember, Paul was a rabbi, and perhaps he dressed as such for the worship service, and they recognized this, so it would be customary to ask a rabbi, a visiting rabbi, to stand up and speak. And boy, did he ever speak. This is Paul's first recorded sermon. I'm sure there were others before this, but this is the one recorded in Scripture, uh, first one. And it is similar to Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and 3 and Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, because armed with the Old Testament knowledge he has, he waltzes them through all of Jewish history. 
the years in the wilderness, the judges, David's kingship, all the way to John the Baptist. And he shows them that through the prophets and um, what was predicted, that they should have known Messiah was to come. They all should have known this, that the Messiah was predicted to come. He recounts Jesus' trial under Pilate, Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead, proving from both Psalms and the prophets that that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Then he warns them by quoting Habakkuk, calling them scoffers and predicting that they will perish for their unbelief. And this was a predicted rejection, which of course was fulfilled in AD 70. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans as a judgment against them, for for they had missed the, the uh, time of their visitation. So he was speaking of what was going to happen to them because they were rejecting the real Messiah. So leaving them hanging with these words, they surprisingly asked him back the next Sabbath to speak, which which shocked me. Um, I wouldn't have thought that, but this was all God's plan. So in verses 44 through 52, which close out the chapter, Paul returns to the synagogue and lo and behold, this time the whole city shows up and the Jews are livid. Bad enough, Jesus is being preached as Messiah in their own synagogue. Now the Gentiles are listening and believing. The Jews screamed blasphemy and stirred up the leaders against them, driving Paul and his buddies right out of the city. So while the city was in an uproar, the Gentiles were rejoicing in their salvation. Now, uh, there is one critical verse here, and that is verse 48. And I'd like to read it. And when the Gentiles heard this, that the salvation had come to them as well, they began rejoicing and glorifying glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as it has had been appointed to eternal life believed. I think this verse is important to note because it plainly teaches that no one can stand between God and those he chooses to grant repentance and salvation to. His election always will stand firm. Now Paul had had it with the Jews. He kicked the dust off his feet, and now he would go to the Gentiles. But the scriptures say that they did it with joy, not animosity. They did it with joy. So, okay, here we are 2,000 years later. What are some things we can take away from these two chapters? And we have application to our own lives. Well, not much has changed. I think the first thing we can, we can exp, um, explain as a way of application would be that we should expect opposition to the gospel. If the world hates Christ, they're going to hate you and me. Jesus said it. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 14. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Peter was arrested. And in the end, they were all martyred except John. And he was thrown on the Isle of Patmos. I suggest for those who have never read it, um, the Fox's Book of Martyrs is excellent. It really does go through, shows, shows us how many have suffered for Christ throughout church history. It's just an excellent book. Um, and if anyone has read the news lately, it should be evident that the persecution of Christians is intensifying around the world, and it's only a matter of time before we start seeing it ramping up in our own country. But God is faithful and will give believers the boldness and grace to stay true to the gospel message. And though the enemy fights God, he's never going to win. Isaiah 55 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So we need not be afraid, for we're on the winning side. The second application that I can see here is we need to pray for our missionaries. 
those who have been called by God to the front lines in foreign countries. We can pray and we can also support them in tangible ways through financial support and letters of encouragement. This is so meaningful to these people. They're separated from their homes and their loved ones for extended periods of time for the sake of Christ. And I would also suggest reading books about missionaries uh, in order to gain a better understanding of what sacrifices they've made. You know, people like Elizabeth Elliot and others who have shared with us so much of their personal struggles on the field, they're just a blessing to read. And this also helps us to pray more intelligently for what it is they are going through. And the third thing that I could take in way of application would be to take advantage of the mission field that God has placed you in. We're not all called to the foreign mission field. But your mission field may be in your home, your school, your work, your church, your local community. Wherever it is, be aware, be sensitive to your surroundings, and take advantage of every opportunity given to you by God. Paul did this. He used his ability as a rabbi to preach Christ in the synagogues because that was familiar territory to him. So ask yourself, where is your familiar territory? And pray about this. God will show you. However, if you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, the one who gave his life for sinners like you and me, then I urge you to stop fighting God. The time is short and you may never have another chance. You have no guarantee that you'll be here tomorrow. None of us do. Today is the day of salvation. God's word tells us that in Hebrews 4.7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word and what it means to us and what all the early church and all the martyrs from that time forward have gone through to get us to where we are today, Lord. They were the foundation and the building blocks. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, for all the believers in this room, Lord, that we would always hold on to your grace to stay true to your word no matter what persecution comes our way and to use every advantage to spread the gospel to our neighbors and friends. And Lord, for those who don't know you, we ask, Lord, that you would shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into their hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.